0: Welcome to the Upland Nation Podcast. Scott Linden here. Glad you could join me. Hope you're having a good winter. I guess we have to officially call it that now that uh, the guns are put away. Um, But are they? In fact, now is the time to start working on your shooting. We're going to talk a lot about that as part of our podcast today will train your dog for doctoring. Yeah, it does require a little bit of that in the Handle It segment. And our main portion of the program will be devoted to Dr. Quail. I'm calling him Kelly Reyna. Met a few years ago at Pheasant Fest. Have uh, been uh, corresponding tel- televisionally, I guess, for quite a while. Kelly is, among other things, the... Um, director of the Ted and Donna Lyon Center for Game Bird Research and a principal investigator at the Quail Research Laboratory at Texas A&M University in Commerce, Texas. So uh, we're going to learn all about, well, how you can turn pen-reared birds into wild birds, among other things. Kelly's a avid hunter as well, and we'll talk wild birds, what they're doing in that world. We'll talk about all the things that are important to you when it comes to quail hunting, of all sorts. Yeah, you'll see what I mean when we get to it. And it's all made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, Trulock Choke Tubes, MidwayUSA.com, Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food, LandTrust.com, and of course, everything you hear here can also be found at FindBirdHuntingSpots.com. Well, um, yeah, cleaning guns, <laughs> setting up some uh, some more study time with my clean guns so I can become a better shooter, maybe you too, and getting ready for Pheasant Fest, uh, aren't you? I hope to see you there. I'll be in the Pointer Shotgun booth doing a bunch of podcasts from the floor, so um, if you're in the neighborhood, please stop by and say hello, love to talk with you. Take a look at some of those guns while you're there, by the way. Um, All of this got me to thinking about some questions I asked on Facebook and Instagram and what do we call it now? X, about our shooting challenges. And I confessed, as you well know, that uh, my biggest challenge in shooting is cross dominance. Uh, I've got some thoughts on that, but I was really interested in Uh, One of your highest priorities, according to the Upland Nation Index, that survey every year. And uh, and sure enough, some of your answers were fascinating, but lots of answers, so I know it's a high priority. (laughs) Harry Hill says his biggest problem shooting is hitting birds. Yeah, I can't help you with that one. But maybe some of the other things we're going to hear and say today would be of use to you. Randy Gazda says, mounting the gun consistently. Randy, I'll tell you, I've learned so much about that in particular. Slow down. Yeah, even in the field, but especially when you're practicing. Slow down. David Sardar, shooting at a dropping target. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. And... uh and uh, the biggest challenge there is keeping your face against the gun stock. And that's all I'm doing. When I practice at the range, if I can't reset a thrower, I'm shooting those uh, bounding rabbit targets. Uh, they're, they're the closest thing most ranges have to that, although some you can get up on a stand, an elevated stand, and shoot down. Um, the other thing I found is that, that little, uh, I call it a demi-step forward with your forward foot. That helps you get your face down into the stock. Amanda Ponte, quick mount. Yeah, slow down. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Let's see here. Bill Vichia. I think that's how I'm pronouncing it. Sure footing while approaching the flush is a coin toss. I, I get it. And again, I I, th- I think that's really important. There's only about four things that I think are really important, at, th- at least to a slow thinker like me. And one of them is is the right foot position and walking forward in the right way. Again, that little demi step might help a little bit as well. Uh, Eric Copang lifts his face from the stock. Just he you, Eric, you say just when you're shooting right to left crossers. It's my problem all the time, uh, and 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 the only way to work on that I think is no. Uh, oh, I did a video that might help you. Uh, go to the YouTube channel and take a look. It it'll cost you a twenty dollar bill, but if you do it right, you won't lose that twenty. Um, it's all about keeping your face on the stock, and uh, and there's an incentive for you. Uh, PD Jacket, yeah. You know I have friends who uh, insist on pronouncing their name, jacket. Others jacket, but uh, I'm just gonna guess PD that you're jacket. Anyway, gun fit. If you're a little bit different than everybody else, I don't care what you are, taller, shorter, wider, thinner. Gun fit does become more of a critical factor. Um, Yeah, finding a left-handed gun for George Cummins. Yeah, I'm just glad you can mount a gun altogether, George. After after the challenges you faced mike gandolfo stopping the gun swing yeah um gosh there are so many in there cross dominance when you're tired hugh snyder you know yeah there there are two ways to deal with that two simple ways at least one is to uh try and wink or squint your dominant eye I just can't remember to do it, so I put that little patch over my eye on, the, on, the, on, my, on my shooting glasses. That helps a lot. And uh, Dan Costume, this one I haven't heard before, it's fascinating. If you were shoot you know a, a target shooter, you know, a, a rifle shooter, for example, or even a handgun shooter aiming for that bull'seye aiming is the key there, that probably is a bit of a challenge to make the switch from aiming to pointing. Um, man so many great uh, number one confessions we all shoot as you know p- more poorly than we want but lots of good suggestions anymore um, on this one Jim Hayes says I can't focus I'd rather watch the dogs <laughs> and also he's worked through that he's at step number four in the 12 step program he's also fine with missing a bird if that's the reason I'm with you 100% Jim Hey much much more over there and there's always a good question for you at the all all of our social media pages Facebook Twitter I mean X and Instagram uh, so check them out answer the questions yourself you might hear your name on the podcast and the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Purina ProPlanSport.com yeah learn more about The extent, I mean, the industry, uh, the most extensive nutritional research for performance dogs like ours. And as I've pointed out before, there's a reason every dog food manufacturer is finally getting in line behind Purina on the correct proportion of protein and fat. 30% protein, 20% fat. That is the mix That creates the chemistry that generates omega-3 fatty acids and also the DHA for brain and vision health. That is the right mix to fuel the metabolic needs and maintain lean muscle in performance dogs like your dog and your dog. Oh, and you too, even if you have three or four of them. Learn more at ProPlansport.com all this talk about shooting straight uh, it does start with a gun you have confidence in and that's why every pointer shotgun comes with a seven year warranty i bring that up because believe it or not a lot of companies don't have a warranty that long let's hope you never have to use it but if you do you know you will get taken care of for seven full years PointerShotguns.com is where you learn all about every style from side-by-side to over and under, if your eyes are on top of each other, or semi-automatic. It's all there in various color combinations, youth guns, and everything else. PointerShotguns.com. Well, this one has been a long time coming as well. Seems like I'm doing a lot of those this season. Anyway, I'm glad to welcome to the Upland Nation podcast a guy I met a few years back at Pheasant Fest and sure enjoyed it and have been meaning to get in touch with him again since Kelly Raina is the director of the Ted and Donna Lyons Center for Game Bird Research. That's at Texas A&M University in Commerce. He's also the principal investigator of the quail research laboratory so so kelly welcome to the show and do you get to wear a badge like Columbo? yes yeah, scott with all that title you think it'd weigh me down the principal investigator and all that wow
1: <laughs> somebody's got to look after these quails
0: <laughs> yeah and and i appreciate that but you know you you have got such a fascinating background and uh and you came to this world um well, maybe like a lot of us, via several strange routes, I could call it. You you spent time on a submarine? That's
1: right. And the first thing i got to just tell to all your listeners is there's no quail on a submarine. And that's why I got out of there just <laughs> as quick as I could.
0: Which wasn't that quick now that I think about it, but uh, <laughs> more power that's to perfect. you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I did uh, nine tours on the USS Kentucky, and they call that the Thoroughbred of the fleet.
0: Oh, I love it. That's hilarious. Was that an L.A. class, or was that a, one of those black ones that we're not allowed to know about?
1: Oh, yeah, it's secret. It's Ohio class and a big boomer, so we had uh, 24 missiles on there, and each one has a lot of warheads
0: well enough about that i mean <laughs> yeah. it, they That'd did fly but, but you never flushed any of those uh, during your tours i hope <laughs> that's
1: <laughs> right no we kept those all to ourselves. So. good i
0: appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> you know um, w- when we first talked you were doing something fascinating and i and i i want to allude to it now and then we'll get deeper into it as well but uh, but you were talking about how to how you were working on trying to turn pen-raised quail into more Turn trying to help them become more wild in some fascinating ways and that just intrigued me enough right there but when we talked a, a day or two ago um, there were all sorts of other things you were doing why don't you give us the overview first off of, of what what your goal is and what you're working on
1: oh you bet well at the Ted and Center for Game Bird Research here you know our goal is to uh, discover solutions for sustainable game bird populations. So we work on quail and we work on grouse and pheasants and all the great game birds that we love to hunt across the nation. And one thing that we found with quail, of course, is especially bobwhite quail, those numbers are declining. And so we're working hard to restore those, uh, not only across the state of Texas, but we're working really from uh, California all the way down to to, te- to Kansas and then down into Texas, so working on uh, all quail species across the United States. So uh, we do research from the embryo. We have a wet lab here. That kind of sets us apart from other research entities. Mm. Uh, We look at uh, how quail develop. We take field conditions, recreate them in the lab, and then see how quail develop. Uh, And then we're able to make some adjustments and uh, implement solutions into the the research stations that we have out in the wild. And we do all this just to have more wild birds because like probably all of your listeners, and I know me and you for sure, um, we want more wild birds <laughs> out on the landscape.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see uh, that end of the, the transaction. Uh, you know, you and I are out in the wild and so are many of our listeners. We're out seeing that part of it, but we don't understand that even Uh, even before that, the the improvements all happen out there, they got to happen in a lab of some sort. What are some of the things you're doing out there that are leading, and what kind of discoveries are you making that are notable for us?
1: Well, out in the field, uh, one thing we... uh... Have been asked about a lot is there something that a farmer or a rancher is doing that is causing detriment to the quail populations? And specifically, they were talking about herbicides and pesticides and things of that nature. And with the recent popularity of like neonicotinoid pesticides, we started looking at pesticide impacts on bob white quail development. And you would not believe the results. Um, we Just at the normal rates of pesticide uh, applications, we were getting beakless quail, a lot of leg problems. Uh, We even produced a cyclops quail, which you know that's all fun and 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 to talk about and everything. But the bottom line was that you know these pesticides, uh, when sprayed on the eggs at normal application, like if you're doing an aerial spray Mm -hmm. uh, during the spring season. Um, that's going to produce a quail that just doesn't have what it takes to survive in the wild. So that was a pretty fascinating response, uh, a result. Um, another thing that we're looking at is looking at cattle ranching. So in Texas, it's cattle country. Uh, if you come to Texas, you're going to have steak and brisket, Uh probably one of your first couple of meals and boy is it good and so uh agriculture in Texas is is really big and it works you know uh, we produce a lot of beef and feed a lot of people Uh, but one thing that has suffered during that is quail populations Mm -hmm. and so it's a battle for grass in the spring the cattle want that grass and so do the quail they need to hide from those hawks and those other predators in that grass to survive and also use it as nesting cover And so what we found obviously was if you overgraze and you you take down this habitat that the quail need, there's no, uh, you have less quail in that area. So we thought, well, how can we, partner with ranchers to, to, to solve this problem. So we created this thing called Grazing Around the Bob White Life Cycle. And it's pretty simple. You uh, leave your nesting habitat up there, you know, that grass that'll hit you in the back of the knees or maybe even the back of the thighs on a good ranch. Uh, you leave that out there, until after the nesting season, then you could graze it down and it starts to grow back, you know, after you uh, turn it into beef. And the uh, same with brooding habitat, you leave it out there and graze it down later. And all you really do is just look at the life history of that quail implemented to your grazing regime. And, you know, pretty fascinating. You end up having to need more cattle to do that because it's pretty hard to graze all that country um, you know, in that kind of rotational grazing fashion, so they end up making more money on cattle and certainly have more quail and to me that's just win win
0: well that that is almost a forehead slapper. why didn't somebody yeah. think of that before
1: um, I know it seems so simple doesn't it
0: yeah, it does yeah you know we have you know I'm in cattle country too out here and and we have people doing rotational grazing, but it's it's not bird game bird oriented it's for uh, usually for water quality or water conservation but boy those kind of things ju- you just don't think about them until until we talk to somebody like you um, yeah
1: and then you say wow that makes all the sense in the world it and does you know, yeah one neat thing is it's pretty simple to adjust a rotational grazing regime mm-hmm. just to implement it you just plant it around the bob whites plant are planted around uh, valley quail or you know, the quail that's in that region. And man, can you make a difference in habitat?
0: Kelly Reina, you've got more uh, uh, initials after your name than anybody deserves. I, I think you have at least three, maybe four or more academic degrees of one sort. Of, and that's before we talk about nuclear missiles. Um, <laughs> but um, But you also are a, an avid, bird hunter and we've hunted some of the same spots we talked about Norton Kansas a while ago what is it you love so much about bird hunting
1: well I got to tell you I got hooked at a young age so uh, we had just a small five acre kind of play just a weekend place we just go camp out there with my family and one of the things that uh, my dad would do is he'd hand me a 410 and he'd say, go have some fun, you know. And uh, we would hunt rabbits mainly. Um, but, you know, we hunted all kinds of things out there. And one day I was hunting with my dad when just all of a sudden, boom, I'm telling you, Scott, the ground erupted below me. I squeezed my eyes so tight I could only see white. And I just remember thinking I stepped out of a landmine or a rattlesnake or something like that. I had no idea. You know, I didn't even know if I was alive. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> I looked up at my dad and he was laughing just like you are now and he said those were quail and I was like quail oh my gosh I'm hooked on quail oh that's man, great. I've, been, I've been hooked on them ever since it was so exhilarating and when I learned you can shoot them you know and and they taste so good uh that I thought well I'm, I'm a quail hunter and you know I was 10 and a half by that age you know I was like <laughs> I'm, I'm really into this and so every waking moment I would try to uh, go out there and hunt quail when i learned there were seasons you know like <laughs> oh you can't you can't hunt after february i thought that is the dumbest thing i've ever heard <laughs> and of course i think it's smart now but uh oh my gosh uh, i got hooked on bird hunting early and i just love it you don't sit in a stand or you know there's always something good and then one of the biggest benefits i found of it is you know i got to take my friends hunting and my family hunting yeah, so yeah. in high school instead of you know going and doing the normal high school things oh we couldn't wait for the weekends and we would hop in our cars or trucks or whatever we could do we'd all pile out there sleep in a tent and go hunting you know and that just set me off in that hunting trajectory uh all the way up until you know today we're <laughs> many that. many years later i
0: love it <clears throat> here are two takeaways from that statement first off how many times is somebody t- in the 21st century going to hand a kid a gun and say, go have fun? <laughs> That's right.
1: It doesn't happen anymore. And s-
0: the second, uh, you shoot just like me. The birds get up and you close your eyes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I'll tell you this just added story. I I don't know that, that it will ever get old for me, uh, and I say that because, here I am. I'm over 50 years old now, and uh, I have graduate students that I take out into the wild. And there'll be days when we're driving across a ranch doing quail research, and I'll go, oh, my gosh, look over there. And I'll put the truck in park, and I'll start running towards, you know, an area. They go, what is that guy doing? And go, it's, a quail. <laughs> it's quail. And they're like, what? You get that excited over quail? how many have you seen you know thousands and thousands and thousands and it just it's still that exhilarating for me and i can't wait to show that to everybody i come in contact with and i think that's you know why i'm in this position and yeah why we get so excited and why we're able to be successful just because we're so passionate about it
0: yeah you know if that ever if you ever lose that it's time to become an administrator (laughs)
1: I don't know. <laughs> no offense I don't know. if you're
0: a college administrator uh, that was all in jest okay i'm winking right now <laughs> yeah. you can't hear that i'll have to come up with a signal for that but <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, you know uh, speaking of administration you, you you were just uh touring one of the big bosses over there and you're going to have a new facility real soon
1: that's right. Um, one of the things you were talking about earlier is just looking at the difference between pinroot birds and wild birds. And uh, we, as we mentioned, uh, we found uh, a significant difference between those two birds and, uh, you know, wild and pinroot birds in their predator avoidance behavior. And uh, we think we can do something about it. We think we can train. Pinward birds to have wild predator avoidance behavior and increase their survival so when the state of texas heard about this they said what do you need you know (laughs) wow And, uh, and uh i wish we would ask for more Uh, But we did receive uh, funding to build a super quail production facility. So that is basically a quail production facility and our behavioral training unit. And so we are thrilled. We've been designing it all year and uh, we break ground in February and construction should be completed in about a year, year and a half. And all that is part of the Ted and Donna Lyons Center for Game Bird Research, uh, which will also be a quail research laboratory and a education building. Uh, and one of the things I'm most excited about will be a quail interactive experience where community members or anybody that comes to this area can go hold quail, see quail, feed quail, and potentially have that same experience that I had when I was 10 years old. You know, come in there, interact with the quail, hopefully it makes a difference in their life. But we create a new enthusiast or hunter.
0: But you will never say, "Here's a shotgun. Go have some fun." <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> yeah, not the not there at least. <laughs>
0: you, you know. So what intrigued me when we first talked uh, several years back was was that super coil program. And and I just want to I want to walk through something. You check me on this. Um, you grade papers every day, so grade me on this. So okay. as you said whether it's Texas or anywhere else, we got, you know what, the quail population decline is 80% since the 60s in Texas. Um, and it's the same in many, many areas, especially with bobwhites. Um, That's right. So we, we got fewer quail. The ways to increase that population are rather, rather limited Well, we can hope to acquire enough habitat and manage it correctly or we can put birds out and hope they survive. Are there any other choices?
1: Well, you you hit on the two keys, you know, build it and they will come is the mantra. And you know, certainly that's a good mantra and habitat has to be present. Um, But where there is habitat and the nearest birds are 25, a hundred miles away, you know, they're just not coming. And so the the option there is to uh, go down to your local breeder, buy some birds for five to ten bucks and release them and uh those birds live about two weeks you wow. know some will make it two months and you know you hear the on rare occasion you know where people have johnny houses and all these things like oh i got some birds from last year um and so but it's a rare rare occurrence sure. and so you know you have birds with a two-week lifespan on on uh, average those pinred birds uh the other option is translocation. So you go to um hey, we got called that there was a quail nuisance area (laughs) in Idaho. What? (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm telling the truth.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Off off the off the air. I want the latitude and the longitude. (laughs) (laughs) I'll text it to you.
1: (laughs) But uh You know there's places where there's a lot of quail still and so we'll call that high density areas you go trap birds in that high density area move them to a low density area to a no density area you know like uh, where there's no quail and so that translocation but that can cost up to a thousand dollars a bird so it's really cost
0: prohibitive oh my god
1: i know so you got ten dollars to a thousand dollars you know which one do you think most people are going to pick uh the first one ten dollars they last two weeks the thousand dollars last two months and so uh you know two months is pretty good average lifespan of a quail is six months so uh, you're getting there uh, but we just thought that's not that's not good options we want to give an another option that's you know not cost prohibitive but has the same survivability of a wild bird transplanted. you know we need to get them to at least Two, two months or more uh, survival so we can get them into the breeding season.
0: Yeah, and you know, everybody has an anecdote or knows somebody who has an anecdote about exactly that. Well, you know, I put out a 100 roosters last year and, and, you know, a bunch of hens, and, and we got some hatches out of some of those hens, the survivors. So it really becomes a numbers game, doesn't it?
1: It really does. You know, we have studied this so much because we wanted to get it right. And so uh, we heard all these antidotes about pin birds that they won't breed with wild birds. Well, we did a study and found out they do. Uh, we saw that they don't. Uh, they won't just start eating natural food. Sure. Well, we release birds, and I mean, st- while one foot is in the box and the head was out of the box, they were stripping the aphids off grass. So we thought, well... That's certainly a myth, you know, wow. and we did a study and found out that wasn't true. And just about everything, we're able to check the box, you know, genetics are bad or uh, and that wasn't true. Uh, the health was bad. Well, you wouldn't be in business as a producer if the, the pinbird birds had bad health, you know. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we just started checking all those boxes. And what we found out was the only big difference between a wild bird and a pinbird bird Um, you know the main difference was predator avoidance behavior and uh, that was i think you saw some of the videos but that was a pretty uh, neat experiment i i
0: I wanted i want to describe that i want you to help me with it in a moment you're listening to the upland nation podcast i'm scott linden that's kelly rayna he's a principal investigator at the quail research laboratory at texas a&m university in commerce texas and um uh The guy knows of what he speaks and Kelly why don't you just describe what I saw in that video and then describe what you're learning about about these birds that were raised in a pen versus uh, wild raised birds and and their behavior.
1: Yeah so sometimes in our laboratory we play stump the professor and really uh, what we're trying to do is you know use actual science to get a good project. So we'll we'll pull up a we'll say a good project and then we'll uh we'll all try to shoot it down and if we can't shoot it down then that's a pretty good project or a pretty good idea and when we were trying to find the difference between pinroot birds and wild birds ultimately so that we can have more wild birds and more hunting available for people um, what we came down with is just pinroot birds get eaten faster you know, and that's something, that's the only thing we weren't able to shoot down. Yeah. Pin birds get eaten faster. And so we said, why is that? That's pretty weird. And so, of course, uh, you know, you go on uh, online or you look through the scientific literature to find that answer, and it's just not there. So we developed a test simulator. And this is what the video was that uh, you're talking about, and we created a pin and in that pen we had a simulated hawk attack so it was, imagine a wooden hawk silhouette coming and attacking some quail that are eating in the middle of this pen and then we needed a a, a predator uh, like a mammal a mammalian predator that would attack these quail. so we uh, came down we had lots of ideas on this one but we uh, covered a remote control car and fur and uh, drove that towards the quail to simulate a, a mammalian attack, and we recorded that that re, you know we recorded that video to see the result. Um, what we thought would happen was that the pinred birds would you know be more reminiscent of a kick and shoot, right? Yeah, like yeah. Uh,
0: they wouldn't they wouldn't the, react. Yeah,
1: here comes the hawk slinging down. And we thought the Pinrod birds might kind of look at it and back their heads up and go, what the heck was that? And let it go by and then keep eating. You know, just totally clueless is what we thought. And then we thought the wild birds would be real savvy. And as soon as they saw that predator, they would take off flying and get the heck out of there. Because when you know, when we buy uh, pinrod birds, we want them flight ready. We want them flying. So we thought wild birds would fly right away. But what we saw was just the exact opposite. You know, those pin-reared birds could identify that predator quicker and respond quicker. And we think that's uh, due to the way they're raised. Um, They would see that predator and they would fly away just immediately. Uh, Aerial attacks and mammalian attacks. Boom, those birds were gone. Now, wild birds did exactly the opposite and just not what we thought was gonna happen. And what wild birds do is they get flat and they hold and they turn their camouflage which is on the back of their body mainly mm-hmm. uh you know the sexual tract the pretty stuff's on the front but that camouflage is on the back you know back and wings they would turn that back towards the predator and get flat i'm telling you about an inch and a half on the ground maximum wow and they would just wait for the predator to go right on by now we saw the videos you and i did you know we did 100 pin birds, birds 100 wild birds that we trapped and ran through the simulator and it was just very consistent um, and we published papers on this so you can look it up but it makes all the sense in the world now doesn't it because that's why when our bird do- that's why we have bird dogs first of all <laughs> and then uh because those birds hold and so those those dogs have to find them in the grass and they don't fly right away uh, they're running and we th- we say oh that dog's getting birdie and then when the, the dog doesn't find the bird we go oh your dog's no good but really that dog's good it found that quail that quail just got real small stopped putting out scent and is hiding from that that predator right yeah and we go yeah. right on by and that's by design or by you know nature and then uh, um, you know we just found that to be fascinating and then it made all the sense in the world that's why we have dogs that's why we. We flush, you know, we, it, they don't flush until right at the end when they're just, we've got them cornered and they, they have no other place to go. It was just fascinating results, I thought.
0: Well, and, and you know, we keep hearing about that, whether it's uh, rough, even rough grouse, but uh, rooster pheasants, of course, everybody talks about them uh being reluctant to fly and that that over the generations it's evolved out of them and i understand that because the minute you go in the air you're a you're a, pardon a pun a sitting duck for every avian predator um, but what fascinated me about uh, about that video and then also our earlier discussion is that they will hunker down and they will just cross their little feathered fingers and hope nobody actually gets so close that they almost step on them
1: that's right i mean you we've both been there and we think oh my gosh i mean that dog's on point and you know they maybe the dog's even looking up at you like come on man yeah you know like don't you see what i'm seeing and you're looking at the dog's eyes like, where are you looking and you walk past and nothing happens and you turn around and you walk past again and nothing happens and then you know, you, you you move on, and then right behind you, whoosh, that bird flushes.
0: Oh, I had them. it! Oh, uh, not four days ago, we got we got eight inches to twenty inches of snow around here, and so all the sagebrush bushes, basically, are little snow-covered caves, and we have a pretty healthy valley quail covey right up behind the place. So my dog is on point, looking at one of those, and he's his back end, his tail is almost brushing. Another one of those little snow caves. I go in and I'm looking in there and I see nothing in that one he's pointing at. And as soon as I bend down to release him, the birds fly out of the other one.
1: <laughs> Aren't they savvy?
0: Oh, and then, oh, to, to add icing to that cake, as soon as I release him from that flush to move on, the other bush erupts with four more. So that's how unwilling they are to fly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to admit this is me, so I'll just say I have a friend that this happens to. But, uh, you know, sometimes a friend can, uh, you know, uh, those birds take off and you get a shot and miss or something. And as soon as, you know, right as you're empty, the two closest to you will flush. Yep. And before you can reload, it's a far shot, you shoot, you miss. And you think, oh, my gosh. And before you can reload, two other close ones (laughs) fly off, you know.
0: Yep, yep. I always save one barrel just in case.
1: That's right, yeah. Uh, At least
0: that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, (laughs)
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Oh, my. That's Dr. Kelly Raina with Texas A&M University Commerce, Principal Investigator at the Quail Research Laboratory. I can't wait to talk more about this. Uh, we've got a lot more to talk about. And also, I'm going to, let's see, what am I going to talk about? Uh, oh, yeah, how to doctor your dog is my topic for the Handle It segment this week. So, Kelly, take a moment while I make a couple commercial announcements, and we'll be back with all of that. Perfect. We're brought to you in part by LandTrust.com. It's a it's kind of like Airbnb. Uh, actually more like VRBO because the guy's not going to be sitting there looking over your shoulder and looking through the keyhole at you at night. Land Trust is a DIY option that focuses on you and your dogs and a safe, high-quality bird hunting experience. They connect the landowners with the hunters. You make a match online online. You do all the arrangements right there. Exclusive private land access takes all the stress out of planning your upland hunt. Lets you and your dog focus on what you want to focus on, having a good time chasing birds. Learn more at LandTrust.com. And once you're there, you want to shoot straight, right? So get yourself some TruLock Chokes. T-R-U-L-O-C-K Chokes.com. 2,000 choices, a choke tube for just about any kind of shooting. I tell you, a well-engineered, well-made choke tube will add a bird to your bag every couple weeks. they got a lifetime warranty and a satisfaction guarantee. Plenty of incentives. Something's always on sale. There's something always available to you when you make the right kind of purchase. Sign up for email notifications on their sales before everybody else knows, you'll know. TrueLockChokes.com. Dr. Kelly Raina, Texas A&M Commerce. You know, back when you were at Nuts, you, uh, I, I didn't think there was a Texas A&M Commerce. Am I right there?
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it used to be East Texas State University. Okay. And then. uh Boy, were they fortunate to become part of the Texas a System. And I say that because, you know, uh, the chancellor of the Texas a System, his name is John Sharp. Let me tell you, that guy is a serious bird hunter. And I've just been so fortunate to have a chancellor of that caliber that loves bird hunting and loves this program.
0: Boy, what what are the odds? <laughs> Only <laughs> exactly. in East Texas, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love it. And that does help so much. You ever hunted with him?
1: Oh, I have. And let me tell you, he doesn't miss at a bird. Uh, that guy, he's a crack shot, and he can see him before anybody else. It's just a wonderful experience to go hunting with somebody like that.
0: I, I know the feeling. I remember making a show in Kentucky once, and the guy I was with, he knew his shotgun so well he never looked you know like we used to hear it maybe it's true if you're a marine send me a note and confirm this you had to take your uh well back in the day it was an ar-15 i think you had to take it apart blindfolded or in the dark and then be able to put it back together Um, that's what this guy was in the field and uh, to hunt with somebody like that you acquire a new level of respect don't you
1: Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, they'll even tell you stories that they only shoot male birds and all this <laughs> stuff. And then you think, oh, that's a load of it. But then you see them do it and you go, oh, my gosh, what, what kind of supersonic brain waves are you processing there? You know, how do you do that? Uh, that's neat. You, you know, I'm I'm a little better than I was at 10. I just don't still close my eyes and shoot, but you know, I don't know if I'm picking out males only. <laughs> uh,
0: I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, I was, uh, and I have alluded to this a couple times. I mean, I gave a speech at the uh, Club Epanol Breton national conclave i think i said it right that time Uh, club
1: (laughs) i won't be saying that (laughs) no uh,
0: it and and while i was there i was with my good friend todd ferris who runs an operation there called prairie prime and that's where all the field work was done he's in oklahoma and we're driving down one of the trails and crossing the road is a covey of valley quail and um so we get to talk is oh blah, 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 blah. i think they're a real good addition here we can do this and that you know they survive blah blah and then your name came up <laughs> so so what's a texan doing with valley quail in oklahoma
1: Boy, I can tell you, if I had a dollar for every time that's been asked, I'd be have a lot more of a professor salary. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, that's easy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we uh, this you're going to love this story, Scott. We were uh, at a conference, and I looked at a we, the students do poster presentations to kind of give updates on their projects, and I was walking around, and a high school student from Idaho was given a poster presentation at a quail conference, and it said. Uh, It discussed a quail nuisance area And I said quail nuisance area What the heck is that She goes oh yeah in Idaho The quail are so thick over there That uh, they're eating all the The crops of the the Farmers and they want them out of there And I said I've got to see this place You know I mean we have a quail deficit (laughs) They have a quail surplus Seems like we might be able to work out a deal And so uh, uh, We talked uh, with the the farmers out there. And uh, I won't mention his name, but I will tell you, he was complaining about all these quail eating his uh, crops. He said, As soon as the cotyledons come out of the ground, these quail come up and eat them. I need them out of here. And while he was talking, I saw about 2,000 geese land on his crops and <laughs> start eating all his
0: yeah so, uh, so, crops
1: and then take off. So, like, oh, so we'll he, he needs
0: a new pair of, the- pair of glasses. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. We'll be happy to take care of the quail. Um, at the same time, our chancellor that I mentioned uh, was out in uh, Oregon, and he said, "Man, I got to tell you, there's some big populations of uh, valley quail out there. They they are in like a hundred cubbies, you know, hundred yeah. uh, bird cubbies. Uh, real neat. And also, they just seem to be, you know, more tolerant to humans, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they've been translocated a bunch very successfully. So, do you think you can translocate some?" Valley quail to Texas. Do you think you can see if that's feasible? And I said, boy, I think we can do that. So we worked with that quail nuisance area. We trapped 750 wild uh, valley quail, moved them to Texas, and we monitor them. And you know, we were able to figure out so much that's applicable to all quail species in the U.S. I bet uh, during that. So we've we've we just learned a ton about quail, uh, and quail translocations and making that process more, uh, you know, more cost. You know, that's so cost prohibitive, but we try to make it more affordable, uh, more efficient, those kinds of things. Uh, but those quail are still around. That was in 2019 and 2020, and uh, those birds are still out in uh, northeast Texas, doing good. Uh, we not only showed that it's feasible, but you know, it worked, and and those birds are still out there. So, um, we really learned a lot, and we were even called by the state of California. You know, to say, hey, we're doing a quail project. Uh, the quail project that they were doing is out on the Presidio by San Francisco. we sure. quail out there. <laughs> and they said, uh, you know, we're looking for the person that knows the most about California Valley quail. We heard your name. I said, well, ain't
0: that <laughs> well of course, a Texan knows more about California quail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, we've talked with Todd on um, how to restore quail. Uh, up in Oklahoma, and of course, uh, our how to get quail, valley quail out in Oklahoma, and of course, it set off a lot of uh, uh, people saying, "Hey, are you releasing a bird that's not native?" Or uh, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons to all of that. But ultimately, as we've always said, our goal is just to have uh, more hunting experiences to make sustainable quail populations in everything we do, and ultimately gets back to when I was ten years old. I mean. I want everybody and everybody's grandkids to have that same experience. And so whether it's a valley quail or a bobwhite, you know, I'm just fine with it.
0: You know, and, and more power to you, because as, as I alluded to, and we don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but there, you know, there, there are um, people and organizations that, uh, that would, would rather see a quail population die out completely than replanted, if you will.
1: Absolutely, and, and yep, th- that just strikes
0: me that. as, well, not a realistic view. But it, but yeah. we, won't, we well, here I want to talk. I want to devote the the rest of our Upland Nation podcast to uh, stuff that will help people like me who wish they could hunt quail better. And uh, so let's let's cover s- some of the ground that you've picked. You've learned this stuff. On purpose, and then by default, just being around all this stuff. What are what are some of the things that quail do that we don't know about? For example, I ask a lot of people this, and you had a pretty good answer when we were preparing for this discussion. I I jump those quail out behind my place. They fly out of that little snow cave, and I watch them, and they land over on that pile of rocks. I go right to it, and they are not there. Or are they?
1: Boy, isn't that the question. You know, I will say two things about that. One is they're probably still there. They, they're able to shut off their scent system to yeah. some extent, right? Because uh, dogs smell, you know, uh, the, they're like a, a salmon swimming upstream. You know, the, a salmon swimming upstream will be out in the sea and it'll pick up a molecule. And it goes, I'm getting close. It'll pick up another molecule of its home home stream and say, I'm getting closer. 10 more molecules, 100,000, hundreds of thousands more, and it's getting closer and closer, and it has that detection of those molecules, and it picks up so much that it says, I'm home. Yeah. Well, a bird dog is the same way with a quail. Where the quails moving in, or they're feeding, and they're all happy, and they have no idea that predators are nearby. They're putting out a lot of scent. And so a, a dog's able to pick up that and then follow those molecules over to where those quail are. Mm-hmm. And as it gets down from 20 quail down to one quail, of course, it gets a little more difficult. We all have those favorite bird dogs that can pick out singles real well. We're so proud of those dogs, you know. But it's a little more difficult when a bird flies out and lands. Number one, it may be running, and <clears> I'm <throat> not saying I'm not saying you and I are getting older or anything, but uh, we may go to that spot and it may be gone faster than we are. First off, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but secondly, boy, that bird's able to just get hunker down, like we mentioned in yeah. the Superquail project. Yeah. It puts its camouflage towards the back. It gets very flat where you can't see it, even in three-inch tall grass. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable, yeah. some of this stuff you can flush birds out of. And it won't produce a scent at all. I'm talking about no molecules coming off this wow. bird. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see that with dead birds sometimes. There's some dogs that just don't pick up dead birds. You know? Sure. Uh, they're just not able to find them. And it's just because there's so little scent coming off that bird unless there's some sort of a, you know, uh, bullet that uh, you know some sort of shot that's gone through that bird and, yeah. and created more of a scent
0: well so. we, yeah it happens all the time i remember it, uh, i actually had the presence of mind to mark it on a gps uh shot a chucker we couldn't find same thing i marked it we came back around a half hour later on the way back to the truck came in from downwind from downwind and sure enough, by then there had been enough molecules coming off that bird
1: that's right.
0: But but yeah. speaking of scent and molecules, I've heard all sorts of theories about this stuff. Uh, maybe you can enlighten us. When a dog is smelling a bird, is he smelling exhalations? Is he smelling feathers and dander? Or is he smelling poop?
1: You know, that's a great question. You know, uh, all the way down to, uh, I believe it was the red grouse, where they determined that you know um uh, you know dogs are pretty much smelling little red grouse farts if you will yeah you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and so i think it's a combination of all of it um the skin puts out these skin sleds as they call it which is basically just cells coming off or dander coming off that mm-hmm, bird mm-hmm. and that's pretty good but you know that's a little bit heavier so it's just going to go kind of up and down real quick you know um but then you have more gases stuff of course like uh Exhalation and farts, if you will, and so that's going to stick around. You know, you've yeah. been in the truck on a hunting, on a hunting trip, where you have to roll down the windows. Yep. Uh, so, uh, yep. You know, that's going to stick around a little bit longer than you want, um, especially if you're a bird. And so the dogs are going to be able to pick up on those uh, those gas exchanges a little more and have those molecules in the air a little bit longer than say a skin skin sled or yeah. skin cell or Yeah.
0: Yeah, the and they're air. they're already. If, in effect, airborne to begin with, yeah. Uh,
1: and uh, one one big upcoming research uh, uh, discipline, if you will, is called like eDNA, and basically just like filter in the air and you, oh yeah, you tell yeah. All, that, all the animals in the area just by filtering the air, you know. I love so it. not not unlike a dog.
0: Well, if if, if we we're going to be a better coil hunter, uh, based on what you've learned um what are some things that we should be doing whether whether it's as simple as oh well figure out which direction the wind is blowing it could be simple or it could be something that nobody had thought of you know a a forehead slapper uh what have you learned that could help bad hunters like me
1: uh one of the big things is just on finding birds so you know we see uh Pastures with little blue stem, for example. Uh, we did a study here in Texas, at least, and uh, you know we were trying to detect quail habitat or quail populations from satellites. And so we already knew where the quail populations were because we went and did call counts and mapped all the birds out. Mm-hmm. And I bet, I bet you'd like to have those maps. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, i'm I'm not i'm not going back for another academic degree just for that
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh i bet you'd pass our upland game bird class
0: though oh maybe (laughs) is it open book
1: (laughs) it really is (laughs) oh i love it uh and so uh so we knew where the quail populations were and we were able to use satellite imagery to look at the the habitat or the different kinds of grasses and all that thing. And man, just almost like like clockwork, you know, you could just predict it so well with little blue stem. So here in Texas and Oklahoma area, you know, you were looking for those big pastures of little blue stem. And then one of the questions is, you know, can I go over to a thirty acre pasture of little blue stem and maybe find quail? Or uh is it gonna be a uh, do I need to find a 1,000 acres of it, or do I need to find 10,000 acres? You know, mm-hmm, that's a mm-hmm. big question. And so uh, doing a study of how big quail populations are, uh, I found to be very informative. And, you know, those quail populations span over like 250,000 to 400,000 acres kind of thing. Okay. I mean, that's a big area and so uh what i learned from that and what i'd pass along is you just want to find the biggest area of little blue okay you could find All for right. example or our biggest area of habitat now um i think your listeners can handle this because i i know many of them they're very savvy hunters and that's what i like about your show so much and uh ben you you know i i told you this when we first met but Uh, you just help people become better hunters and i just i just love that about you i love that about your show and uh so i think they can handle this the reason why quails span that many acres or that while while they have to have that much habitat you know uh you know it doesn't make sense to a lot of people because they've had a hundred acre ranches they've they've hunted Uh, 2000 acres. And so there was plenty of quail there. I think that guy's wrong, you know. Uh, But the reason is is because no quail wants to have sex with their sister, you know, Uh, or their family member, we'll say. Or or uh, at
0: least admit it. Or at least admit it. And
1: so uh, uh, the thing with that is every juvenile leaves, you know, they leave their parents. Yeah, Uh, Quail are no different than humans. Uh, As you get older and you have kids, your kids kind of get frustrated with you and you sort of, maybe you get frustrated with your kids And uh, they want to leave when they become teenagers and they want to get out on their own. And you kind of are ready for them to get out on your own, you know. And uh, and that's just built in by nature. You know, it's called the major histocompatibility complex. There's no quiz at the end of this, so nobody has to remember (laughs) that.
0: (laughs) So they (laughs) spread out uh, for genetic uh, diversity.
1: Yeah. And to get away from self uh, for genetic diversity, they can detect who's related to them, just by uncomfortableness or comfortableness. Really? You know, so they'll, they'll get to the next covey and go, uh, I don't like these people either, and it may be an uncle or something. And then they get down the road a little bit further, and they go, ah, these are my people. You know, and they may be uh, a couple thousand acres down the road or whatever, and say, yeah, these, I'm not related to these people. I like it. I'll stay here and they make a family and, and do just like we do. So ultimately the thing I'm saying is it takes a lot of habitat to sustain a quail population. And so I would look for just the biggest chunks of good habitat you can find. And of course this, you know, this sounds like, oh, here we go. But, uh, that's, that's just one of the, the, the best tips I could give is that uh, quail populations need hundreds of thousands of acres, so just look for the biggest void in the map that you can and hunt that area hard.
0: And and I know you've done a study that you are reluctant to share with everybody. I doubt you'll ever publish it, but it is the phenomenon of millennial quail coming back to the covey at age
1: 35. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: well, well, that was a joke too, everybody. Email.
0: Don't send me an email. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Those are the ones that uh, the older quail throw up in the air when the hunters come.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about um, be, uh, uh, a, a day in the life of a quail? And it may vary from species to species. But, you know, everybody, I'll never forget an old timer said, yeah, go down to that creek at one o'clock and walk <laughs> this way. And they'll be marching down the hill to the water. And that day he was right. Well, he's never been right since, but <laughs> is there a routine? Are there some general guidelines about quail behavior that we might need to understand better?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just like what we think. Um, there's quail cubbies, and they cubby up, you know, whether it's cubby time or or pairing time or whatever. You know, they still kind of cubby up. Um, and, you know, we've learned a lot just with trail cameras. Oh, Putting I bet. trail cameras out yeah. and watching uh, the trail cameras over the months. In saying, Oh, I see one quail there. Now I see 14 quail, you know, they're coving it up. Uh, now I'm seeing less quail. Oh, they must be paring down, you know, and, uh, getting ready for breeding season. And you can learn a lot just from putting the tw- tw- trail camera out in those, uh, quail prominent areas. And I, I just think you can learn so much from there. Uh, but one of the things we learned is that they, they do covey up in the evening for protection. As you know, they put all their butts together mm-hmm. make kind of a donut, a quail donut. And, uh, you know that's how we find those roosts as all their butts are together we find that scat a big pile of it oh, yeah. uh, across the landscape um which which is also f- we've done some phenomenal research with that poop and i think you know we can discuss that later too if you like <laughs> but,
0: oh it's um, one of my favorite subjects <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they uh uh just like we expect they they break up in the morning as soon as the temperature's right um and that's that's really the key there Um, we all have those days where we go out in the morning it's a little foggy maybe it's a little uh cooler and we find no birds on an area that we know that birds should definitely be there and they just in those damp cloudy days they just hang tight a little longer than normal Mm -hmm. they don't go out and feed you know, at the normal six, seven, you know, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., it may be noon, maybe one o'clock before they break out of there. Uh, they're really, I don't know that they're hoping. I don't know that a quail hopes, but if it does, it's hoping for that uh, cloud cover to break and that sun to come through to warm them up a little bit, to give them a signal that, hey, the daylight's here and it's time to move on. Yeah. And without, yeah. without that signal on those cloudy days, it's just. They just don't break up out of those cubbies as much and don't start moving around to the areas that we expect them to be in.
0: Well, you, you probably know Rocky Gutierrez. Now that I think about it, I think everybody knows Rocky. He was, he's one of my go-to quail guys. Did uh, helped Aldo Leopold's son write the book on California, California quail. It's um, such a good book. Oh, isn't it though? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to find a copy if anybody has one, but um Rocky was also pointing out that, uh, uh, well, as many people know, but maybe not everybody, valley quail roost in trees. And, in fact, I was walking back with the dog last night it, right at dusk, which is too damn early this time of year. But <laughs> they were already in the trees at, at, at about 5.15 in the evening. And you, know, you could tell because you, you'll never see them, but you can hear them talking to each other. Yeah. They did, I call it muttering. They're just kind of whispering, you know, like this. They're just, hey, are you all right there? You want to come over here? That sort of thing. But um, they drop out of those trees, Rocky said, and you're saying the same thing. It's not just because the sun has risen. It's the sun plus temperature plus who knows what.
1: Yep. Yeah. And even barometric pressure plays a big yeah. role. And we wouldn't think about that, but that barometric pressure will start putting pressure on their brain. Mm. And they'll stay, they get kind of dizzied out, you know, almost like uh, you'll see kind of weird quail. You know, every now and then we get reports, oh, I saw a bunch of weird quail. We'll look and the barometric pressure is fluctuating real big time. A storm's coming or the front, the Arctic front's coming through or something like that. And you, you know, we can almost always chalk it up to that to say oh yeah they're they get a little weird when the barometer is fluctuating a lot and so uh cloudy days um you know those misty or uh, uh, foggy days mm-hmm. foggy mm-hmm. days seem to be a big play a big role uh, of course the temperature um you know they're like us they, they probably have a hard time getting out of bed on those really cold days um, and then barometric pressure yeah you, know, you can look at all those and, uh, and there's been studies but uh, you know what I think we'll do? We'll put out a little, uh, uh, like a tip kit, on, uh, like a little, uh, just a little help sheet on uh, what when quail get up and when they, when they don't as much. I oh, think I'd love be that.
0: Useful. Yeah, that would be fantastic. There's so many questions I would love to ask. We'll do this again, but first, one final quail behavior question got a dog on point we know there's birds somewhere right in front of him upwind of him and and we're going to walk in on those birds um we want to walk in from the right side the correct side um and we want to at least begin to set up for a shot in the direction we think the birds will probably fly can we do that can we make an educated guess about what direction they'll go
1: Oh, I think so. Um, you know, uh, two things to think about. One is they're probably trying to walk uh, yeah. you know, behind you. They're trying to get mm-hmm. behind you mm-hmm. so that you keep going in your direction and they're going behind you. Yeah. So knowing that you know, that quail have a ground game, uh, they do not want to fly. They do not want to reveal their position. They're going to hold and try to get behind you. So that's one thing to think about. Uh, the second thing is uh, a lot like pheasants, you know, they want to fly up into the wind. Um, and so flying into the wind is going to be something to think about too. Um, it's a little too, they have a little bit more control when they fly into the wind, when they fly with the wind, they have a lot less control. And so you'll just see them fly into the wind more uh, than you will see them uh, fly with the wind. Uh, It's not absolute, but it's a, it's a good rule of thumb.
0: Well, you know, it's just like an airliner. Uh, they they always choose the runway that gets them flying into the wind. They get more lift quicker.
1: That's right, and and they know all the aerodynamics. A quail is a savvy pilot, so they have all the aerodynamics figured out, and if they can get that lift, they can get the hell out of Dodge a lot quicker. And then, of course, uh, you and I both know this, and, uh, you know, you want to flush them. You want to be on the side of the dog that that that, that you have a good shot, and that you know are away from people and all that so if you want them to go left you'd be on the right side of the dog if you want them to go right you'd be on the left side of the dog
0: yeah Yeah. it
1: doesn't always work but it sure helps
0: yeah it's one more obstacle if you want to call it that they're 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 not knowingly going to want to fly into a wall and you're basically (laughs) a two foot wide wall Um, that's right and plus you're wielding a firearm they don't know what it is until it's too late but I get it. It makes all the sense yeah. in the world. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Well, Kelly Rayner, this has been spectacular. Uh, I can't believe I, I didn't do this until just now. We've got a lot more to cover. I uh, can't wait to get you back with us on the Upland nation podcast. Learn so much. We'll continue to digest all of that. And don't forget that quail nuisance area. I'm still waiting for the lat long on that. So um, feel free to text it to me anytime in the meanwhile, keep up the good work and i mean that sincerely and um will i see you at pheasant fest this year
1: oh you sure will we'll fantastic at fest, and fest, and i can't wait to see you i thank you for all you do uh you sure have made uh, uh quail hunting and game bird hunting more pleasurable and more informative and i just uh appreciate everything and thank you for having me on today
0: it's been my pleasure i will see you in where are we this year sioux falls south dakota that's right. All right. Safe travels. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon.
1: You too, Scott. Thank you so much. You you're soon. welcome.
0: Wow. <laughs> I can't wait to talk with him in person. It's been so long. It'll be so fun. And I promise to share it all with you. So if you're not going to Pheasant Fest, uh, just pay attention to the Upland Nation podcast. Go to the you know social media and I'll help you there as well. We have the, uh, my handle it segment this week is kind of like everything else. I'm getting ready for next season in some ways, and maybe you are too. I'm going to talk about how to get your dog ready for Doctrine right after these two messages. First from MidwayUSA.com. They've got all the ammo you need, whether it's target ammo this time of year, uh, Upland ammo, both non-toxic and lead shot. They've got the bismuth that you can't find anywhere else. Customer satisfaction is their number one goal at midwayusa.com. Sign up for emails or text messages. You'll get 10% off your next order. Lay in a big pile of ammo for target shooting season. Take 10% off at midwayusa.com. And take care of your guns. Uh, hopefully, you're doing a little bit of that all the time. But this time of year, you might want to give them the once over twice, with all the gear and all the um, the materials you need, if you will, at sageandbreaker.com. If you got gun cleaning needs, they've got they've got all the equipment for you. They've got all your storage needs covered, and they've got all the consumables, we say in television, Uh, the stuff you use up and have to replace. Firearms, grease, uh, cleaning, lubricating, and protection, formulations of all sorts, and most of them are non-toxic. Yeah, clean your shotgun in the living room. No one will complain. Well... That's between you and the family, I guess. But learn more about what they have to offer at sageandbreaker.com. I was just today restocking uh, Flick's uh, big care bag. And I I use the term care instead of emergency bag or first aid kit because there's so much more in it than that. Uh, But it did bring up something that I... I I hadn't flashed on for quite a while, and and our Handle It segment this week is about handling your dog if he gets injured. And I'm not going to give you step-by-step instructions this time. I'm just going to suggest a few things that might help you in the future, starting with your puppy. Uh, Teach your puppy to let you handle every bit of him from toenail to nose tip to tail. Practice working on his feet in between his pads, messing with his nails, looking in his eyes, his nose and his mouth and everywhere else. I've talked about counting testicles in the past. Yeah, the dog's gotta be comfortable with you doing all of that. And maybe other people as well, if you're doing a hunt test. So teach all that as a puppy when, when when they can't hurt you, if they object to your work. Put them on a table or anything else that's off the ground, tailgate, uh, big rock, picnic table, it doesn't matter. And then as he gets older, start introducing the stuff and the tools that you're going to use, whether it's uh, you know, uh, nail clippers or a Dremel tool, uh, bandages, cotton swabs for his eyes, all those things. He ought to see them, and he ought to see them from a distance and then move them closer and closer to him. Then start touching them with that stuff. Then start practicing all the things you're going to do with that stuff. If it's motorized or it makes a noise, introduce it from way back just like you would introduce a shotgun. I use a spray bottle for a couple different products on, on wounds in particular. Um, and to a dog, I think that sounds like a snake. Think about it. So introduce that at 10 or 15 feet away and then bring it closer and closer over the course of a few days so that dog understands it's not a snake. It is a bottle with good stuff inside of it. And um, that should help quite a bit. Practice on the parts he can see first. For example, if you're working on feet, start with one of his front feet. That way he can watch you. He learns to trust you those are the things that are important when he is injured and he needs help and you need him to be as calm as possible and finally this always worked for our horses and it works for dogs as well if they are not calm cover their eyes with a bandana or with a jacket or something like that put that over their head and they will simmer down just a little bit bottom line Practice your dog's doctoring when he doesn't need it. Yeah, the Heddle It segment this week brought to you by two of my good friends and supporters, ESPamerica.com. I'm now using their ear protection in the field and at the range. Digital, custom fit. They stay in. They're comfortable. No wind noise. I can hear the birds. I can hear the dog's collar tags. Learn more about getting your own pair at espamerica.com and at mid valley clays and shooting school not only can you learn to be a better wing shooter you can stock up on shotguns they've got all the sub gauges you're looking for every one of them 20 28 410 always in stock they've got a selection that can't be beat and if they don't have it They've got a pipeline that a lot of dealers don't have to some of the manufacturers. They can probably find it if anybody can. If you're looking for a unique or special edition browning, they've got the Satori Maple in stock. They've got the Satori Medallion in stock. Learn more, shop around at midvalleyclays.com. Well, thanks, Dr. Kelly reyna for the insights on quail behaviors, among other things and uh, sure appreciate your career change you're doing a lot of good for all of us well you were anyway in the u.s navy um anchors away and all that jazz and thank you all as well especially if you contributed something to the discussion this week whether it was your shooting skills or lack thereof or any of the other topics we cover at the social media that i share here if you left a rating i sure appreciate that and if you will please spread the word just to one person Invite them to listen to the Upland Nation podcast. We're made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food, ESPAmerica.com Hearing Protection, Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School, Truelock Jokes, MidwayUSA.com, and LandTrust.com. Of course, this discussion never ends at the social media and also at findbirdhuntingspots.com. I'll see you there until I see you in the field, and maybe next time I see you, we'll be at Pheasant Fest. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation podcast.